Welcome to Go Behind the Ballot, a podcast where two Texas moms go on an educational quest to demystify Texas politics. Join me, Nicole Abshire, and my co-host, Claire Campos O'Neill, as we deep dive into the most burning issues, hear stories from candidates, and offer hope in these challenging political times. Let's saddle up and go behind the ballot. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Go Behind the Ballot. I'm Claire Campos O'Neill. And I am Nicole Abshire. And we're so thankful that you're tuning in today. This is our mini episode. This is going to be a continuation of the conversation that we had with Adam Johnson from the Citations Needed podcast, which we love and talked about a lot in our interview with him. Um, But we thought that it would be smart for us to discuss the Hunger Games a little bit more in this mini episode, um, because that's the title of our South by Southwest panel, Hunger Games, Who is Winning in Our Broken System? And in our conversation with Adam, something that came up a lot was neoliberalism, this um, ideology, I guess, this economic theory that competition is king, we have winners and losers, and that's going to be the best way to go about our economic system for all of us. At least that's what we're being fed. However, we're learning maybe not so much. There's actually a lot of people falling through the cracks and it 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 doesn't seem to be serving us well. So we really appreciate that Adam gave us some really great food for thought in that conversation. And with that in our mind and the Hunger Games Thinking about that, we found this really interesting article by Dr. Michael J. Harris. He wrote a book about the Hunger Games, and he had a series of blog posts sort of chronicling the things that were going to be in his book. So we looked at one of his uh, blog posts called District 12, Where You Can Starve to Death in Safety. So this is what we're going to be using to inform this discussion. Um, So Nicole... What do you think of this article? Well, what a provocative title, <laughs> number one, right? It definitely is like a, whoa, that is, that catches my attention. Um, it was really interesting the way that he interweaves a movie with real life and the parallels that he draws. I honestly had moments as I was reading in it where I thought, wait, is he talking about the movie or is he talking about the actual state of politics? It was really interesting how seamless that could be at times. And I had to really stop and check like, okay, wait, what is he talking about here? Um, And he pointed out, which is something that I hadn't ever realized before that hunger games was it, did it come out the day that I want to get it right? Um, Yeah, the book, sorry, was released on September 14th, 2008, which was the same day that the investment bank, the Lehman Brothers, declared bankruptcy and the global financial crisis entered its most acute phase, which is just wild to think about because the implications that are built into the story of the Hunger Games were playing out in real contemporary times. Uh, I know, absolutely. It's, it is... quite a coincidence that those things happened on the same day. Um, I think, though, let's take a step back real quick and just talk about the Hunger Games series, and then we'll jump more into uh, 
Michael's article. So Nicole, tell me a little bit about your experience with The Hunger Games. Did you read the book series and watch the films? I did read the book series. I haven't seen all of the films, but I read the book series not too long after they came out. It was so popular. Um, so I thought, all right, I'll give it a shot. And I, and I was hooked, definitely. First and second book, I really was really hooked by. Um, I have not typically been into kind of post-apocalyptic literature, but I did find it really interesting. It grabbed my attention right off the bat. So I guess for folks who haven't read it, it's it's a post-apocalyptic world where the U.S. is divided into districts, and each district sort of has a, a specialty, some sort of resource that they provide, and the capital is wealthy and excessive, and the surrounding districts are quite poor, and each year... It's every year, right, that they mm-hmm. hold the Hunger Games. Um, but someone is, well, it's through a lottery system. Jump in, clarify. Yeah, Because yeah, sure. this is really definitely all from memory. I'm really having to You're dig deep good. here. But- so I watched the film yesterday to help refresh my memory, the first film. And every year they have this ceremony called The Reaping, where they have two buckets of names, one for girls and one for boys. And your name is in that system more if you need more resources. So let's say that you're, you have a big family and you need more, um, provisions, you know, wheat, whatever you can get more, but you have to put your name in more. So there's, uh, almost this connection too, to like the welfare state and, um, and, and this sort of like, um, how they penalize you for, for your need almost. Uh, so the reaping happens. They select a young, they, they select a boy and a girl between the ages of 12 and 18 from each district. And then they all go to the arena where they battle it out and there's one survivor. So yeah, I mean, thinking about the film and thinking about this article and the parallels between our current society, it's really interesting. Just the idea of like, Well, here, I'll back up too. So Susan Collins, I was reading an article, was describing her inspiration for The Hunger Games. And she said one day she was flipping channels. She was flipping between like the war in Iraq. I think it was a war in Iraq and reality TV. I don't know if it was like Big Brother or Survivor, but these shows where it's like winner takes all. It's very much the individual who rises above the rest that is rewarded. And I think that smashed together in her mind and she was like this is this is our world and here's this alternate reality of our world that looks kind of different but still not so much that we can't imagine it becoming perhaps our future one day so um it was really interesting looking back on the hunger games today and as you mentioned nicole how the book came out in 2018 the day that lehman brothers collapsed 2008 uh, 2008. Sorry, I'm really bad with numbers over here. Uh, Yeah. And there's, yeah, I'm just like so impressed that she put all these things together. Um, This idea of individualism and like the sole survivor coming out on top and how that impacts the districts and the districts are rewarded when their tribute wins the Hunger Games. I mean, there's so many threads that she weaves together so well you just look at it and you're like, in a way, I'm like, how did this get made? I'm surprised that it didn't get crushed by like, 
big book publishers or movie studios or I don't even know. Like in a way, it's shocking that we're allowed to see this reflected back on us and be like, huh, yeah, I don't know about this world. I think that's the brilliance of her storytelling, right, is that you can get so caught up in just the story that you're not thinking about the broader implications, which I feel like is really a huge compliment to Suzanne Collins, that she was able to kind of weave in these really important storylines and food for thought, (laughs) no pun intended, um, while also being deeply entertaining, um, even if it was stark and frightening, but it Mm -hmm. was entertaining. Yeah. And and it's, again, the idea of storytelling where the specific is universal, like the specific story is Katniss's sister. She's the main character, her sister Primrose being selected initially as the tribute for the district. And she has this strong maternal impulse. She could not imagine her young 12 year old sister going off to die. So she volunteers and that volunteerism kind of kicks off this um, rebellion in a sense, like how, like you don't do that in these districts, but she was like, not my family. So so right there, it kicks off this idea that we can have our agency, and and that's radical in this world. And then step by step, she's, she's just surviving, but her survival, her path of survival is rebellious, and, it, and it, incur- it wakes other people up in Pan Am, in this world, that there's a, another way, and uh, the oppression, you can only be oppressed so long until you start to fight back, which is what happens as the series progresses. And I was going to say for myself, what I really loved about the series is that I'm an older sister. I have two younger sisters. One sister is seven years younger than I am. So when I was reading this, I can't remember if I was a teenager or a little bit older, but I felt that tug like, hell yes, I would volunteer as tribute if my sister was selected. Like there's no way that I could stand by and let her be chosen to die. Like I would have to take on that burden. So that was a strong tug for me when I read this series. And, and I think a lot of people can relate to that and connect to that. And this impulsive like family, like our family is, is who we fall back on and who we step up for. But, but then it's more than that. It's, it's, it's also the communities that we're in and how we fight for our communities. So it starts there and then like fire, it spreads and grows. And that's how this revolution ultimately happens in the series. So yeah, lots of interesting things. I want to read one quote that um, Michael referenced in this article from Susan Collins, the author. Um, In an interview, I think she said that, quote, the social political overtones of the Hunger Games were very intentionally created to characterize current and past world events, including the use of hunger as a weapon to control populations, end quote. This was like really ringing to me reading the article because our South by Southwest panel is going to be all about hunger. And I never really thought about this idea of intentionally using hunger to control people. And it made me think, is that what's happening in our world? And with our conversation with Adam Johnson, I'm like, it kind of seems like it is in some ways. The fact that people can be working two, three jobs, 40 plus hours and still not have enough to feed themselves and their families. It seems like that's a systemic problem. What, what, What do you think about that, Nicole? Yeah, I think that what makes these kinds of ideas really difficult is that it would be 
I would imagine, impossible to find somebody who's in a position of power who would say directly, I intentionally use hunger as a weapon, right? You're not going to find that. So it is more a matter of looking at how society operates, looking at the scarcity that we've become very accustomed to, just sort of evaluating it all and putting the pieces together. But it's not a straight line from here to a conclusion like that. And yet there is evidence that says that whether it's an explicit use of hunger as weaponization or it's just like a byproduct of kind of greed and protection of certain interests that make hunger happen, it's, you know, it all adds up to the same thing, which is that people are hungry in a society that is incredibly abundant and wealthy. And so what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. Right. And again, you see this so clearly in the Hunger Games in this country of Pan Am. Um, another thing that was interesting to me about Michael's uh, article was that he said in the, the capital, which is where all the wealthy people are, is lavishly rich and techno- technologically advanced while the districts survive in poverty and distress. And Nicole, I couldn't help think about rural Texas and all these articles that we read about how in rural Texas, their water quality is crap. Like these poor people have to, they're constantly on boil notices for their water. A lot of them don't have broadband access, or if they do, it's very poor. A lot of hospitals are closing in rural areas. I mean, you see just how they are neglected and left behind. But then you look to a place like Austin, where we live, which has all these technology companies flocking to it, like Oracle's here now. Um, Tesla just relocated. We have Dell that's been here forever. Facebook, Google, you go down the list and... You know, there's all these articles coming out right now, too, about how Austin is, some people don't even recognize it, the ones who have been here for a while. Um, It's like, ah, the the contrast is stark, and yet I see the parallels between the Hunger Games world and our state. It's wild. It is really wild to really think about. And I think it's, there's a gap, right? There's a gap in the recognition that it, could be different and could be better and that there are ways to get there. I feel like it's just, we haven't figured out how to bridge that gap, but there's such a gap and that that's what we want to talk about and highlight in this series. And so mm-hmm. I'm so glad we're having these conversations. I Same. Yeah. Like I, I, I it's, you know, I don't know if it's funny, but we talk about this idea of discovering hunger, how there's been different periods in American history where hunger has rose to the top. And I feel for myself, like I'm discovering hunger too, as we're researching and learning more about the specific issue. And uh, initially, you know, it feels kind of like, oh, you know, this is going to be a drag and it's going to be so depressing and and it's going to feel like there's nothing we can do. But I have actually had the opposite experience where I feel like I'm so glad I'm learning about this, that there's a reason the world is the way it is. And now that I can see it better, I can start thinking, well, what's what's the alternative look like? How do we get to that alternative reality? And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just glad that, that my brain is lighting up in new ways it, it never did. 
this is so important. I mean, hunger is just so fundamental to, um, to health. I mean, it's like a, it's just so fundamental to health and good health. Yes. Not not being hungry. I mean, and having healthy food, access to healthy foods on a regular basis every day. Yes, yeah. I mean, right. It's I I completely take my access to food for granted. I mean, wow. Yeah, this has been incredibly eye opening, and same. I am so grateful that I'm getting to learn these things, and it's really made me ask a lot of questions that I'm, you know, I feel like I probably won't ever find a concrete answer, but they're good questions to be asking. I think one of the ones that I want to talk about right now is if we take someone like a Suzanne Collins or we take the Hunger Games and we think of that as a potential future, right? If that's a vision of a future that's stark and scary, right? That's a place that we don't want to go. I feel like we could universally agree that that is not the future we would like to see happen. And now that we've learned so much about the history of the, yes, and air quotes, discovery of hunger and the movements that have tried to mitigate that and the ways that we've answered as a society, and then we look at our present, this is the thing that I'm really trying to make sense of and get energy and action around, which is, okay, so then how do we, in our present make changes so that that doesn't become our future, the world of the Hunger Games. And there's so much wisdom in knowing the history. So I'm so glad that we're going to have that discussion because the thing that I cannot escape is the idea that when you're in a moment, right, when you're present in it, you don't have, of course, the ability to see outside of it. You're in it. And so I think what can happen is like when we have looked back at history it can be so alarming that that was the norm, that some of the language that was used was so normalized, that the conditions that people lived in, that that wasn't seen and that that was so easily ignored. And then when it was seen, some people still made excuses for it. I mean, it was really um, scary and sad. And so what I think I'm trying to like contend with is the idea that in this present we are living a version of that. Like what you see in that 1968 documentary, what we see and read about in terms of the conditions of the times then, we're, we're living a version of that. And so how do we bring enough energy and attention and urgency to myself wake up, help other people wake up so that we go, oh my goodness, like we've got to address this so that we don't have the future that is, you know, shown in something like the Hunger Games. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a weird feeling. Yeah. It, well, it makes me think about our conversation with Adam Johnson. And there was a clip that we pulled out and we've been posting on social media where he talks about in times of crisis, that's when we're really compelled to turn to systems, systems for answers, for solutions. And if we don't have a good system there, be it like a pro-justice system that lifts all boats, people are going to turn like the you can it opens like fashion fascism will fill that gap in the absence of a good system that is equitable for all of us. So we have to 
do so many things. We have to be engaged in our democracy. We have to support organizations that think about all of us and not just a few of us so that when we need help, that is there instead of the alternative, which is fascism or nihilism or just like the system sucks. So let's do away with the system. It's like, no, that is not a great course either. So um, I I think we just have to be so much more vigilant and we haven't released this episode yet, but I think about the conversation that we we have have had and y'all will hear with Dr. Lori Green, where she said, um, as she looks back on history, you have to be very mindful of retrogression, which is what happens, how we just backslide when we aren't being proactive. Like uh, all of this to me, <clears throat> it's like working out. Like I hate working out. It sucks, but I have, you have to do it to like maintain a healthy body. It's the same thing with our democracy or our society. We have to work on it or your marriage, all these things that are important. If they, if you want them to be functioning well, you have to work on it. You can't just like let it spin off on autopilot and hope it's going to be okay. It's not like entropy. Isn't like the world tends towards entropy. Like we have to be active and work. And, and the good news is like, we don't have to do it alone. Like the more we do it together, the easier it will be. But again, it's like creating those organizations that are there and, and are going to be there and not just fall by the wayside that we have to invest in is what I'm concluding. And I'm sure I'll have more conclusions as time goes on. <laughs> yes, no doubt. I, one of the fundamental questions Another one, <laughs> the other one was what I just talked about, that relationship between history and the present and the future. But another huge fundamental question I have, which is the individual versus community, that I feel like that is at the ground level of so much of the arguments that we see happening. Schools are a fantastic example that um, it feels like where we really are, if you were to, I don't like a binary, but I'm going to use a binary. It kind of feels as if what the ultimate battle is, is between folks who believe in a communal good, a public good, and sort of a coming together to advance a public good at, versus folks who are really concerned with individualism, individual freedoms, individual rights, and do not support or want to contribute to a communal good. And to me, that feels like that's the ultimate fight we're having right now. And it's the most visible in that the public school fight. And I feel like it, it happens with poverty. It happens with hunger. There's, you know, we've talked about the individual blaming versus thinking about why folks can't make enough money to buy food. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So There's a lot to think about. There is a lot to think about. And I think School is a great example for for what for how this is playing out right now. As a matter of fact, I listened to this radio broadcast yesterday talking about the school choice de- debate, and f- folks were allowed to call in or leave voicemail messages. And I would say all of the call callers, except for one, was like, "I don't. I'm very worried about this system being introduced in Texas." Some folks who called in had come from other states where school vouchers, education savings account, whatever you want to call it, were introduced into their state. And they were like, it was terrible. It was a mess. Like my child's school had to cut back on 
programs because they had less funding because dollars were taken away because that's what happens when you introduce this. And they were like, we're very concerned. And I'm frustrated because I'm like, this is also what I'm hearing in, in other circles and other events I go to is not not a welcoming, like, yeah, let's let's bring this, bring it on, but a concern of what are the implications going to be. And the thing that makes me frustrated is the majority, it feels like the majority is not being listened to and valued. It's, it's the, it's the minority. It's, uh, let's call it the ruling class who want to push this forward and impose it on us. When we, when we as a collective seem to be like, actually we're good. We don't want that system. But again, it's, there's so much work you have to do when you're not in power or you don't have the representatives who reflect back the power, the, the will of the people. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yes. Well, folks, wow. <laughs> let us know what your recollections are of the Hunger Games. Um, man, this film, another thing I'll mention briefly that um, Michael points out is the Hunger Games illustrates how we shame the poor. And he says classism is the last acceptable form of discrimination. Ah, my goodness. Right? Like, we we talked about this too. I don't know if it was in Adam's episode I think we probably did, but this notion of the deserving and the undeserving and how you deserve if you do this, 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 and this. And it's like, but why is that the the world we've created? Why do we blame poor people for their situation? Why do we, um, uh, you know, continue to believe these myths that they're lazy or they're this or they're that, they have too many children, whatever it is, it's... It doesn't, or that our society is built on meritocracy, right? Oh, yeah. So that That's if a big you one. have, it's because you earned it, mm-hmm. and sometimes yes, but oftentimes no. <laughs> and so if, but if that is your underlying belief that like you have abundance, you have wealth because you somehow earned it or you you're deserving of it, then the the opposite becomes true right? Somebody doesn't have because they don't deserve to. That is really dangerous. Yeah. And even in the Hunger Games, as as I was re-watching it, I was thinking about that myth of meritocracy. Because in the Hunger Games, they present this illusion that anyone could win. But it's not true. Because if you remember from the film and the books, districts one and two have their, um, what do they call them? Their career tributes. Like, kids who train for this their whole lives. So of course they're advantage. Of course they're favored to win these games because they had the resources, their families, whatever, to put them in these academies, to train for the Hunger Games, to bring glory to their district. I mean, give me a break. Like even Susan Collin was smart enough. I mean, very smart, but she was smart to include that detail in the Hunger Games because again, it's showing that it's it's not if you work hard enough, it's like, and you have all these bumps along the way. Like, there is no level playing field. Yeah. There really isn't. And it is, it's challenging to, I've said this to Claire so many times, but it has been really challenging for me as we've done this, this learning and this exploration to have to confront my own biases and my own hangups when it comes to this. It's it's been very confronting. Yeah. 
but I'm glad. Yeah. It's yeah. We're we're trying to embrace the discomfort and just sit with it and and be like, "Okay, I'm feeling something uncomfortable. What is this about?" Uh, I've definitely had that experience too. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's brave to acknowledge it and know that it's there and see it. Cause even that is like, a, a it can be a radical act for some people to be like, Oh, what is this? And to not just dismiss it, which we tend to do cause it's easier to dismiss it. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap it up. But as a reminder, if you want to follow along with this uh, article slash blog post that we read, it was by Dr. Michael J. Harris and his book. I was trying to find this earlier, but here it is now in front of me. It's called Stay Alive, Surviving Capitalism's Coming Hunger Games. So this book is out if you want to read it. We haven't read it, but we've read a lot of articles from his website and they're great. Um, And any last thoughts, Nicole, before we say goodbye? Just the usual, I think I would say, engage with us. We'd love to know your thoughts. Obviously, Claire and I are really learning a lot and having some feelings and thoughts about it. And we'd love to hear yours. It's been really challenging. And so I'm curious. I would love to hear from folks if they are also finding some of these ideas challenging. And then um, per usual, if you like what we're doing, a rating and a review would be amazing. So, um, yeah, follow along with us. Stay with us. Yes, and subscribe to our podcast, however you listen, so that it's there on your device, ready to go when our episodes come out on Mondays and Thursdays, so you don't miss any. Um, Because I think we mentioned this in an earlier show, but we've recorded most of our guest interviews, which are fantastic. We're still working through our minis, um, but it's great content. We can say that with confidence because we have completed it and we're really excited to share it and personally I listen to our episodes many times not just to hear my voice but because I learn a lot (laughs) a lot is shared and uh, it helps to just hear it again and again and for it to slowly but surely sink in yes the value of repetition (laughs) and for me that's definitely an Adam Johnson requirement yeah must listen again and again yes you'll get some real gems All right, folks. Well, thank you for listening and we will talk to you very soon. Thank you everybody for joining me, Nicole Abshire and my co-host Claire Campos O'Neill on Go Behind the Ballot. Hopefully we've demystified some little portion of Texas politics and we hope that you'll do more with us. Check out our website at www.gobehindtheballot.com where you'll find links to all of our social media and you will find our community. Let's join together and do more. We hope you'll let us know what is working and we hope you'll join us next week. Thanks everybody and have a good one.